We'd all uh, take our seats, Roy. The reading of the scripture today for the message will be from Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. These are the words of our Lord. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drunk, uh, drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight, and then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, John and I uh, argued over who got to teach this, and I won, so... Good for me. He really wanted it, but so did I. Uh, it is a strange passage uh, in, a, in a strange story. It's one of the things I love about the Bible, though. You know, if you were to try to invent some kind of a book, I've, I've heard people take this position. If you were to try to invent some kind of a book to convince people to be good and to follow rules and, um, and to be, you know, good and moral people, uh, this probably wouldn't be the one, uh, and this story probably wouldn't make the cut. The, uh, the time that the, the uh, city was destroyed because it was rampant and full of sin, and the, uh, the daughters of one of the men decided to trick him and get him drunk and sleep with him and have his, have his own grandchild, uh, this probably wouldn't be the story that you would put in the text, but that's what I love about the scripture is they're real. They're, they're not a, a snow job just trying to convince people to believe a certain way. They recorded exactly what happened. They record people accurately. They record stories accurately. And today, what we have is this lesson of Lot is continuing for us. So a really quick survey before we continue into this story to remember what transpired previously. Here we are in, in Genesis um, chapter 19, picking up in 30 through 38. But if you look back just the tiniest little bit in Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, we have this, this statement which reads like this. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst 
of overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This, this story is, is one of complete and total destruction. We'll see that the destruction of this city of Sodom and Gomorrah was, was, was swift, it was drastic, it was immediate, and it was definite. We're wrapping up this story that started in Genesis chapter 18, where some visitors come to Abraham. Lot is Abraham's nephew. These visitors come to Abraham. There's, there's three of them. In verse 17 of chapter 18, we, we read that the Lord begins to share his plan for Sodom's destruction. And, and we remember that the scriptures point out to a certain reputation of, of Sodom. In Genesis chapter 13, 13 talks about the way that the, the city of Sodom is, is known. So in Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And so these angels then depart. There were, there were two angels that then depart from Abraham, and they continue out into the city. They find Lot, and they end up staying at Lot's home. Remember, they, they, were, they were suggesting that perhaps they would stay downtown. Lot uh, insisted, no, you, you need to come, you need to come and, and stay with me in, in my place. And so they end up staying with Lot. The townspeople, the, the, all the men of the town try to break in, and they want to rape these angel men that they've seen coming into the city. And Lot offers up his betrothed virgin daughters as the alternative to the angels. And thankfully, the angels take over in this moment. They strike all these men completely blind so that they're trying to find their way to the door even. They become exhausted trying to do that. And the angels then have Lot escape with his family, his wife and his two daughters. He tries to get the sons-in-law, but they are making jokes about the whole situation. And so then Scripture documents this complete and total annihilation of the city very well. A couple of passages, there's, there's more than these, but a few. Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 40 says, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. Speaking of the, the, the total destruction of this area, completely wiped out. Sand may be so hot it turns to a glass surface. Also Isaiah chapter 13, verses 19 and 20 and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, shall be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. The destruction was complete and total. I can only imagine what kind of testimony that must live as to know that there used to be a city in this place and suddenly there's nothing. No one will ever live there. It is completely and utterly destroyed. It is ruined. The ground will never again support life. That is the city that was described in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13, which was declared as wicked. They were declared as great sinners against the Lord. 
And in a moment, that area, that city is no more. This is leaving behind the the testimony of destruction and smoke for all to see for a very long time. Deuteronomy 29, 23. The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing grown, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is describing God's judgment and his destruction of this area, which was a great city. We read it was a great city. There was, there was big walls that were erected. Uh, Lot had a home with, with, a, with a door to it. I mean, they're not living in tents like Abraham is out in tents. He's kind of dwelling and moving around. This is an established city with likely infrastructure, with protection, with permanent structures. See, it's mentioned in Isaiah 13, Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 9. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This area lives as a picture of God's complete and total judgment. Lamentations chapter 4 and verse 6, for the chastisement of the daughters of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. This is the city that used to stand as a testimony against God, that God has visited to see if it was so, that Abraham said, if there's even 10 righteous people in the city, will you not destroy it? Not even 10 righteous people in the city. Maybe there was just one. And that one is interesting to look at also. The scriptures declare that Lot was righteous. You read that and and are you curious about how was Lot righteous? When you look at the fruit of his life, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, was, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is the, the, the great testimony that God leaves behind. Hot, smoking ground. And all that survived is... Lot and his two daughters. His wife almost made it, but she looked back against the strict commandment not to and was turned into a pillar of salt. And so this, then, is where we find Lot, righteous Lot, in verse 31, afraid and hiding in the mountains. Chapter 19 and verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Lot went from this large established city to having a home inside the gate walls. Perhaps he was prominent. He was sitting at the gates looking to uh, entertain these people that were coming to now going up and living in the hills. He lives here now. This is his home. It doesn't say that he went and he hid hid out for a bit. It says he lived there. He's living in the caves outside 
the city. This is Lot, who negotiated to be able to go to the city of Zoar just before the destruction. If you look back at Genesis chapter 19, verses 17 through 22, he's, he's being told by the angels that the destruction is about to come. He's being told that it's going to be swift and that they need to get out of there, and Lot takes this moment to negotiate. Verse 17, And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape into the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And so now... He is so fearful after seeing this utter destruction. The man who thought he wanted to be able to escape to the next city to have the creature comforts and the safety realizes that there is nothing for him. And he is, I believe, terrified and hiding out in the hills. Verse 31 of our passage. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us. After the manner of all the earth, come and let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. A couple of interesting things here. First of all, this must have been some incredibly serious wine. Um, don't know what they're nipping on, but uh, it's got to be strong. Kind of puts to bed the whole idea that in biblical times, wine was... Uh, either just grape juice or not very strong, because apparently it's strong enough that his daughters were able to confuse him. Number one, they think they're maybe alone. They think maybe they're alone in the world, apparently. They've seen, I can only imagine the city that you were born in, the city that you grew up in, is now utterly destroyed. All the scriptures that we read leave it behind as a testimony to the watching world around of God's complete and total destruction. Nothing will ever live there again. It was obliterated. So much so that in the heat of the moment when the angels are getting them to escape, getting them to flee from the judgment of God, Lot still takes a moment, asks to say, hey, can I go to the next city, is granted by grace the favor to say, sure, Lot, you can go to the next city. He becomes so utterly terrified after seeing the judgment of God that he's now hiding out in the mountains. They may think there's no one. Number two, they believe that in order to sleep with their father, they're going to need him to be in drunk first. And that's very, very important. Because that says something. Um, maybe um, if you've ever had the misfortune of trying to talk sense to a drunk person, uh, you know that getting someone in a heavily drunken state so that they would be reasonable is a fool's errand. Right? It's, a, it's a fool's errand. Drunk people are completely unreasonable people. Um, you'd, you'd sooner be able to convince a toddler to do something than a, than a drunk person. 
They do things that, when sober, they would never do because inhibitions are completely switched off and drunk people are in go mode. And so his daughters know that they need him in this way so that they can sleep with him and produce offspring. Now, here's why I think that's so key and so important. Um, is, is a really interesting hint in the book of 2 Peter, in the second chapter, in the seventh verse. And we'll, we'll return here a few times, because I, I do think it's very important. 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 7. It talks about Lot. If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed, by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Now, do you read that and you wonder, is this, are we talking about the same lot? Are we talking about the guy who stood there with Abraham and looked at all the places that he could go and picked Sodom, the one described by Genesis 13, 13 as doing wicked things against God. That one he picked was the one known to be wicked. And then he lived there, and then he took a wife there, and then he created children there, and then they were betrothed there. He's righteous? And he's greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. I think that this is incredibly key. Because a righteous person will always struggle with sin. A righteous person will always struggle with sin. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is when a righteous person is around sinful environments, when a righteous person is personally involved with sin, it will never sit well with that person. God won't allow it. Does that mean a righteous person, someone who is redeemed, someone who is a believer? For, for those of us who live on this side of the cross, those of us who proclaim the blood of Christ, who have the Holy Spirit of God in us, does it mean we won't sin and that's what it means to be righteous? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, because that would be a work. That would mean your salvation was by a work. That means you were doing something that earned you salvation, and that cannot be. Absolutely cannot be. So we'll continue through. We'll look at uh, a few passages. We're going to look a little bit in Romans and and 1 Corinthians. Um, But I think it's very key that he struggled with the kinds of sexual sin that were happening around him in the city. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says that none is righteous, not a single one, None is righteous, no, not one. So then how do you deal with people being described as righteous when Scripture says none is righteous? What it's talking about in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 is it's describing people in their natural state are not righteous. We are not righteous. There is nothing about us that is righteous. Scripture makes that incredibly clear. It even says that none seeks after God, no, not one. So if we look at Romans chapter 3 a little further down, In verses 21 through 24, we read this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This, this is a New Testament reality. This is future forward from Abraham and Lot. Christ would come, the law would come, the concept of the perfect lamb would come. But the believer who is redeemed to God in the way that God sees fit in that time, being outside of God's character, will always struggle. Will always struggle. The righteous will always struggle when presented with, living in, or in proximity of gross sin, because sin is against God. It's not just not following some rule. It's not like God has a rule book, and if you're not following it, that's bad because you should follow his rules. It's that sin is actively working out against his character and his nature. It's being out of alignment with God. God is perfectly holy, which means completely different than we are. Our natural faculties, everything about us is naturally bent away from God towards hating God. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed when you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is how Abraham and Lot are righteous, is because they have faith in God. They have faith in what God has said to be so. They have faith in God's word. They trust God. Does that mean that their actions then are perfect? No. But if you have faith, does that mean your actions are perfect? I think this is a great example because it's one that's so blown out of proportion for most of us, we can say, my gosh, I would never do that. But think about that. Yes, I think you would probably never do that. And in, in spite of that, Lot was described as righteous. Wrap your head around that. If you struggle with your own salvation, how could, you, how could God love you? Lot is described as righteous. So how were they righteous? If you would flip backwards a little bit to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, because this is key as well. Genesis chapter 15, we're, we're with our friend Abraham here. I'll start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and heir of my house is uh, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6, this is the key. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Why was Abraham righteous? Because of his faith. His faith in God's word. That was his righteousness. Nothing's any different for us. How are we as, as New Testament Christians righteous? By having faith in God's word. That Jesus was the perfect lamb who came to satisfy the blood requirement for the law. Who lived in all ways like us. Tempted, yet without sinning. And so by having faith in Christ to be our Lord and our Savior, we are declared righteous. We are justified. The idea of justification is, is the concept that we are made just as if I'd never sinned. We're justified. Have you sinned? Absolutely. Will you sin in the future? Probably. But you are made just as if you'd never sinned. It's a legal concept. It's like a law court kind of a concept. It's like you're guilty of a crime and someone steps in and says, I will take the punishment for his crime. That person is Christ. That's the benefit that we have in Christ. So then to say, I am righteous because of my works, takes away from Christ. It would be to nullify what Christ has done on your behalf. There's a sense in which I think we want to say that. We want to say we had some part. We want to say we did some penance. We want to say we gave back to God. But that flies in the face of everything that the scripture says. When God saves, he directs our affections. He changes our hearts. This is why the righteous can never live in perfect harmony and comfort with sin. This is why if you were um, an unbeliever before and you lived in a certain way, and then by the grace of God, he allowed you to see um, it, the, the mercy of his salvation in his son, and then you came to be a believer, Jesus became your Savior and your Lord, then those various things that you used to live in previously, they don't sit as well with you before. The, the areas where you were in open sin against God, they make you uncomfortable, you struggle with them. You, there was no struggle previously. It's because God changes our affections. And so when I hear people say, well, I need to fix up all these things before I get saved, say that is a wrong understanding. What you need to do is submit yourself to God, and he will change you over time. Remember a buddy of mine in New Mexico talking about a guy that was saved, and someone was like, hey, I'm really struggling with the way he prays. He said, what do you mean? Well, he cusses while he prays. Well, give him time. You know, it's going to be okay. When God saves, he directs our affections, changes our hearts. He takes a stony heart and he makes them a fleshly heart, fleshy heart. We tend to begin to care about the things that God cares about. And I think we see that in Lot. It's why 2 Peter talks about Lot's struggle with sexual sin. And I think that's helpful because it gives us a, a looking glass it's why maybe Lot's daughters were betrothed and virgins. Did that part of the story stand out to you? This is a city whose 
Sin is so rampant and so in the face of God and so centered on sexuality, yet these young women who are, who are betrothed to be married are virgin. I wouldn't think that that would be the pattern in Sodom. I just wonder if Lot's house was perhaps a little different. And so I become then encouraged by looking at Lot. And then reading in Galatians chapter 3 in verse 9, so then those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. I do feel blessed by this story because it reminds me what my righteousness is. It is what theologians would describe as alien. It's it's not me, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not even of me, but it is given to me, it's alien to me, it's foreign to me, but it's mine. So then those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And what was Abraham's great faith? Believing what God said, taking God at his word. Our working out faith reverses what happened at the original sin in the garden, which was not trusting God's word. Verse 33. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made the father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Verse 38, the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Righteous Lot met a wife, created a family, led them in a city that was judged and wicked and against God and hated him. And I'm suggesting that this should encourage our faith. Should encourage our faith. Um, the short version is if, if Lot... If Lot can be described as righteous, then certainly you can as well. There's no thing that you've done that would block you from being able to be seen by God as righteous. If, if the scriptures bear testimony to Lot and call him righteous, I mean, look at the guy's life. And then our righteousness being encouraged, like this side of the cross, that our righteousness is tied to, to Jesus, the God-man, the, that at his own baptism, where the, the, the Lord God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when he looks on the Christian, when he looks on the New Testament believer, he sees that son in whom he's well pleased. The scriptures describe Jesus as being our own advocate with the Father. He sits at the Father's hand and advocates on our behalf. While Satan tries to work against us, he's the accuser. So Satan would, would remind you of who you are in the flesh so that you would try to walk away 
from God so that you would doubt your own salvation. When the scriptures say, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? And it goes through a list. All of these different things, famine. And then it ends and says, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. You're bound in creation. You can't even separate yourself from the love of God in Christ. And all of that should free you from the weight, perhaps, that you feel. Jesus said that his yoke is light. It's not burdensome. It's not designed to be a burdensome kind of a salvation. It's designed to be a completely freeing salvation, to free you to new life. Because it's not you. It's not your performance. It's Christ's merit. So if you doubt your salvation or if you doubt your ability to be righteous, you're effectively doubting Christ and his position before God, who himself said, behold, my son, and who I am well pleased. We saw the list of examples of behavioral traits that keep us far from God in Corinthians. Paul is talking to the, the church at Corinth and he is sharing with those believers at Corinth the list of things that they were. Such Some of these, some of you were these things. And you know what that list is? It's just a word picture of what it means to be human and far from God. It's, it's not a list that differentiates people from being particularly good and redeemable men and women from non-particularly redeemable men and women. It's a picture of what it's like to be dead in sin and trespass. That's how the scriptures describe us. Without Christ, you are dead in your sin and in your trespass. And the world would mock that concept. It would say you're perfectly fine how you are, but affirm who you are. It would say you should be more true to yourself. I tell you what, you should not be more true to yourself. Yourself is a dead heathen who hates God. And if you want to be more true to that, then you're a blabbering idiot. You should not want to be more true to hating God, hating the creator of everything that is, hating the author of love. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is describing humanity. People in our natural state do not inherit the kingdom of God. It's like Every funeral you ever go to is just some paid personality standing up front trying to convince everyone that the person has gone to a better place. Well, they might not be. They absolutely might not be in a better place. They might be in a place that is wholly worse. To be absent from the body, the scriptures say, is to be present before God. You do not want to be present before God in judgment at all. When we face what is described as the, the, the bemis seat of Christ, the, the judgment, what we want is to declare Christ's life and righteousness. You do not want to try to stand under some ridiculous pile of works. Well, I did really great things. 
Oh, well, what, what did you do with my son who lived in all ways, who died taking on the, my wrath for your particular sin? What did you do with him? That would be the question. Not what, what righteous acts you think you did. Scriptures say that your most righteous act is like a filthy rag before God. There is nothing you can do. And maybe that feels burdensome. Maybe that feels heavy. I assure you, it is not. It is the most freeing reality that you will ever receive because it frees you from trying to build a pile of work so high that you can climb your way to God. God is not asking you to do that. In fact, he gives us the whole of his word so that we can see across all humanity, no one has ever found their way to him through good works. He has always found wicked men and women and redeemed them to himself by an offer that says, exercise faith. That was how Abraham was described. He believed God, and that is why he was righteous. By God's grace, through our faith, we are redeemed. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. You notice how much of this is, is sexual in nature? You ever look at the world around us today? We are some weird people. Really weird. And celebrating how strange we are. I mean, we think it's the best thing to be sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. We think this is like the pinnacle of what it means to be a person. Even to speak against these things in public setting will lose your job. Isn't that strange? What a strange world to live in. If you speak out against any of this, if you work for a major corporation, you will lose your job. That should be strange. We are to trust God for our understanding of all of life. Because in our normal state, we're bound to Adam. We trust fallen logic, like the serpent suggesting that his word against God's should be truth. Anything that stands in opposition to God's word, we should immediately recognize is not truth. If, if someone or some world system or some government says something, and you can look at the scriptures and say, well, that's plainly out of line with scripture, then it is wrong. It is a lie. It is a weapon. It is incorrect. The scriptures are always correct. They are infallible. They are inerrant, which means they cannot be wrong. They cannot fail. They have no error in them. Human laws are rampant with errors. And if one is stood up against the other, scripture is always correct. It is, as the word describes, living and sharper than any two-edged sword is the word. Able to, to uh, divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It is everything we need for training, reproof, and uh, doctrine is the word. So remember the picture that we had painted in the book of Romans in chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Remember that, that we are justified. We are made just as if we'd never sinned by the very grace of God. It is his grace to give us that. It's his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Gift giving, you don't, you don't give someone a gift because they've earned it, right? That's a wage. That is, you, you know, I'm not thankful when my employee, employer pays me. I am highly expectant that they'll pay me. When I get my paycheck after some period of working, I don't go up to them and say, oh, thank you. In fact, if they don't pay me, then we have a whole uh, other conversation that we need to have. Because I am not receiving a gift, I am receiving a wage. Salvation is not a wage because you don't work for it. There's nothing you do. You don't bring anything to the table. You don't benefit God in any way. By his grace, he extends the ability to be saved to you. He gives it to you. He, in fact, takes you who are a recalcitrant, awful, hateful creature, and he changes your affection to be able to even see how beautiful the gospel is. And then he, by his grace, extends that to you through his own son, who was the only perfect, spotless lamb who could have ever lived, who lived this life and always like you, like every single person who lived in the scripture, just like you, just like every other human who has ever lived, just not succumbing to the temptation to sin. And you read through the, the, the various temptations and trials that Jesus lived through, they eclipse yours by worlds, worlds. Jesus was directly tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days. I struggle to fast for 40 minutes, right? If I start to get a little hangry, you don't even want to have a conversation with me. I will hurt your feelings in a heartbeat. Jesus, at the conclusion of a 40-day fast in the desert, is able to endure an onslaught of temptation directly by Satan, and he responds with what? The only offensive weapon listed in the spiritual armor, which is the word. Jesus responds with the word, which highlights another great truth, which is that we should hide the word away in our heart so that we might not sin against God. I've mentioned before, I've, I've had so many friends in, in this life, and I always appreciate these kinds of people who always can respond to a situation with scripture, from Scripture. That's so deeply encouraging. If you're one of those people, I, I treasure that gift in you. And as soon as I find out about that in you, I will exploit it. I will tell you all kinds of things that are going on in my life so that you can line that up with Scripture. I love people like that. So continuing through Romans chapter 3, that beautiful picture in verses 21 through 24 about the, the gift of salvation, um, it, it lands on this great truth that I love while thinking on Lot's righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We are justified apart 
from the works of the law. Legally connected to God in Christ through the finished sacrifice of Jesus. He doesn't see us as acceptable because of some things that we've done. He sees us as acceptable because we've believed his word and trusted Jesus. It's a simple exercise of faith, just like Abraham, just like Lot, which makes you righteous. Even when you don't feel it, you're righteous in Christ. And what that should do then is encourage us, encourage us to go more after what's described in Scripture as becoming more and more like Christ. It's, it's our progressive sanctification, meaning we become more and more like Jesus by varying degrees over time. The, the, the Christian life should look like continuous growth. And I, this is one of the reasons I encourage us to be in a body and connected. Uh, we have all kinds of studies that happen all throughout the body. It's helpful to be a part of those with other people because what happens is, what happens at the family picnic? You know, you show up with your chubby little face and Nana squeezes you on the chin and says she remembers you when you were this big. Your family doesn't remember that. They've been putting up with your garbage every single day and frankly, you're annoying. So they don't see the little changes in you over time. So being engaged with other people in the body, they'll see these little changes in you as you go and they'll be able to remind you of those. Markers of grace in your life and it will encourage your walk because you're so close to yourself so you don't see it sometimes. Right? Maybe the people in your household don't even see it because they see you over time. And so getting a breath of fresh air from someone who, who's walking this walk with you to say, brother or sister, I know you're struggling right now. Let me encourage you by what I see God doing in your life. That's life-giving. You can't do that on your own. It also will encourage your growth in that sometimes they're going to come alongside you and say, brother or sister, I see an area where you're struggling like crazy. Or maybe you should be struggling a little bit more. Um, you are, your, your attitude is becoming incredibly sour. And that is not a great mark of what's going on in your life. Why are you so frustrated? So we should be iron on iron sometimes, encouraging growth in one another. Sometimes what we need is to be encouraged that growth is happening inside of us. The Christian life should be one of growth. Because we're already justified. We don't add to that. We don't add to that, not one iota. We have already been made legally just as if we'd never sinned. We just now get to live the race of this life to bring Christ increasing glory and honor, to have more opportunity to share of his goodness and grace and mercy with the people around us. And increasingly so as they see us find opportunity to die to ourselves. Maybe it's apologizing to someone for how you reacted or acted towards them. I tell you, you, you think you can argue people into the kingdom? If you can argue someone in, somebody else can argue them out. But if they see you humble yourself before them, that changes things. Because I know some of you, and you're not naturally like that. But when you take opportunity to humble yourself before others, it speaks volumes. He doesn't see us, he, God, doesn't see us as acceptable because of the works that we do but because of Christ and because of our exercise of faith, which by his grace he allows us to take. So if that describes you, if you're someone who's kind of on the periphery and you know that you know, I'm, 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 maybe I believe it, but I'm not really in, 
taking the step of obedience of, it's, it's described as repentance, uh, it's, it's a 180 degree turn. It's not a 360 because the problem with a 360 is you go right back in the same direction. It's a 180 degree turn. You're turning from trusting yourself to make all decisions, trusting yourself to stand before God, trusting yourself to do anything, to understand everything, and you're turning 180 degrees and you're trusting Christ to be your everything. He's your savior, hung on a cross, died for your sin, and he's your Lord. Lord. Lordship is a concept that we don't live under every day because we're Americans. We're just looking for an opportunity to throw your tea in the water and deny your tax stamps. Lordship of Christ says, you are Lord over everything in my life. I submit everything to you. So then repentance becomes trusting not yourself, but trusting God with your everything, with all the might of your life, trusting Christ to be your Lord. If that describes you, then you should do that today. There's no magic prayer. I can't lead you through it. It's simply you before God saying, God, I want to be saved. And then we would love to have a conversation with you about what is happening in your life, about what the gospel is. Make sure you understand what it is that Christ did. But I would encourage you, don't leave here today without responding to God's call for you to be his. If you're a believer and you have been for a while, I hope this frees you, the righteousness of Lot. Because when I, when I hear and I survey Lot's life, I don't step back and say, what a righteous guy. That's not my reaction. And that it's how God sees him is the most incredible and totally encouraging thing to me. If, Rock can be, if Lot can be righteous, certainly I can. Praise God. And when you're justified and you're found connected to God in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, you'll be a lot like Lot. Convicted, perhaps, of sinful lusts, convicted of sinful temptations, but secure in God's grasp because of Christ. And this should propel us to increasing obedience and increasing growth and looking more and more like Christ. What a great opportunity we've been given by God in Christ. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for allowing us to have the lesson that is Lot's life and God, letting us know that you see him as righteous because of the, the same faith exercised by Abraham, God, and the same faith that we have the opportunity to exercise. So I pray if there would be anyone here today, God, who needs to exercise that faith in your word, maybe for the first time, God, that they would do it, that, that nothing would stop them today, that this would be the day that they become yours and you become theirs that we would earn a brother or sister in the kingdom today, God. I also pray for those of us who have believed for some time and perhaps our, our feelings have grown dull over time. God, would you re-encourage us by the righteousness and lot? God, would you give us new, new zeal and new vigor and new hope? God, we love you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.